Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. We are acknowledging the honor of God, and we are acknowledging that um, sin is that which brings dishonor to God. Anything that falls short of the glory of God is um, acknowledged to be sin. And I think that in our Western mindset and certainly in our Western ways of thinking, we, uh, we have come to imagine that sin is only personal or uh, systemic in a way that I am not personally responsible for. Um, and we fail to understand what the dishonor of God is um, from a theological perspective and, and how we are collectively and communally engaged and involved in that and what that looks like to be a people of God who are redeemed, not just individuals redeemed in Jesus Christ, but a people who are redeemed and what it looks like to bring uh, shame and dishonor not only upon ourselves through individualized sin, but what it looks like to bring dishonor to God and and then how we as a people um, might understand the theological, biblical frameworks of shame and honor and what we can learn from shame and honor uh, cultures about these concepts. And so I'm really excited to uh, to have a conversation this morning with Audrey Frank. She has written a book called Covered Glory, The Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. And Audrey's going to help us understand um, honor and shame, uh, the place of honor and shame, the freedom uh, from shame and the restoration of honor, how all of that is wound up in who Jesus Christ is, and how um, how we can not only speak into honor and shame cultures, but how these concepts speak into our culture as well. So Audrey Frank is an author and a speaker and a great storyteller, and she will be here in just a minute to share with us about Covered Glory. We'll be right back. Audrey Frank is here with me today. You can find her at AudreyFrank.com. You can also find her on Twitter at Audrey C. Frank. Audrey, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we all have Muslim neighbors. We all have um, uh, people with whom, you know, in particular where I live, I see my Muslim neighbors in the grocery store um, and I see women who are covered in ways that I, as a person raised in a Western culture, am not covered um, in terms of, you know, my, my physical body. I'm also not, um, you know, only walking several paces behind my husband who, uh, by requirement in some of these cultures, must be present at all times. 
my um my access to conversations with my Muslim neighbors is is fairly limited. Um, but I want to understand um, the view from behind that veil. I want to understand what women uh, who have been raised in Islam, um, I want to understand how they see the world through that veil. And I want to understand how the gospel pierces that and penetrates that. And so I love your book. Um, the book is Covered Glory, The Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. And Audrey Frank is here today to um, to help us see. So let's just start with some basics about uh, the Islamic faith. Just introduce us to introduce us to just just how different it is from our Western and Christian worldview. Okay, well, the most basic thing I can describe, and I think my Muslim friends would thank me for this, for beginning this way, <laughs> is to tell you the five pillars of Islam. These are the the central beliefs and practices of Islam. The first one is called Shahada. And this is sincerely reciting the Muslim profession of faith. The second is Salat, performing ritual prayers in the proper way, five times each day. The third is Zakat, which is simply paying alms or a charity tax to benefit the poor. Then the fourth is Som, which is fasting during the month of Ramadan. You may be aware of that already. Um, when we see our friends fasting all day, from when the sun rises and until it sets every day. Um, and then fifth is the Hajj, pilgrimage to Mecca. So these, the reason I start with these five pillars is because these are pillars of behavior. These are, these are, these are prescribed ways that one must behave to demonstrate faith. Demonstrating faith is very important to Muslims. And so that leads to what we see with our eyes from the outside. We see women dressing in ways that, that cover their bodies in modesty. We see ways they behave together in their gender roles in public. Um, and we see them praying in public at times. Um, those five prescribed ways to pray five times a day are very important. So um, Islam is a, is a religion of, of behavior, of showing your faith through your behavior and your works. And I think that when we when we differentiate or distinguish a Western worldview from an Eastern worldview or even an Asian worldview, um, we, we begin to have conversations about honor and shame cultures versus what whatever individualized, individualistic uh, culture we have in the West, which I don't even quite know mm -hmm. how to describe in juxtaposition to that. So help me, because I realize that I'm stumbling here. Um, oh, how that's does okay. The we all do. Yeah, yeah. So how does the Islamic faith... Um, uh, align with or develop within or um, maybe develop as a part of an honor-shame culture? And how does that compare with a Western worldview? You know, the best illustration I can give that would be very easy to understand for all of us is from, um, remember the Santa Fe school shooter in May 2018, and we've recently just had this El Paso shooting. And um, so this is close to all of our minds right now. Here's a quote from the New York Daily News in September of 2018. And this is a quote about the, the mother and father and their feeling of responsibility about the actions of their son, okay? This is a picture of our Western worldview. And um, they said, the mom and dad claim they bear, quote, no liability for the actions of their son based on the general rule of law that there is no duty to control the conduct of others. This, is, this was part of the Monday civil court filings from their lawyer. 
And um, so compare that. There is no liability for the action of their son. Then compare that to Ruslan Tsarny, who was the uncle of the Boston bombers, referring to his nephew, Zokhar. He said in The Guardian in April of 2013, quote, he put a shame on our family. He put a shame on the entire Chechen ethnicity. So if you compare these two worldviews here, you see that here in the West, yes, like you said, we're individualists. Um, in, in the Muslim world, Muslims are collectivist largely. They are, the honor-shame culture is always associated with the group to which one belongs, whether it is the family, the community, the tribe, or the nation. This is one of the most distinctive dis- differences, whether it's culturally or religiously. Um, we see our religion and our cultural decisions as very individual to us, very independent of others' opinions and others' influence almost. But overseas and even here in the United States now in honor-shame cultures, that is not the case. Honor and shame are actual positions in society that can be won or lost by your behavior. And they have everything to do with your group. So that sentence right there, like we we could just – we could just carve that one sentence out and frame it because I think that when when we think about honor and shame, we think about personal honor and personal shame. We actually we actually would even go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and say, well, they were naked and unashamed. And then uh, they realized their sin before the Lord. We would individualize that. We would describe that as personal um, and we would acknowledge their their shame as personal. Mm-hmm. And so there's mm-hmm. there's. There is truth to that, but that is not the fullness of the Bible's uh, description nor the theological category of honor. Like the honor in the Bible is about God. It's about God's honor. Um, and the shame that we experience is a shame brought upon all of us as people. Am I, am I getting at, the, at, at sort of the, the, the meat of it in terms of how we as Christians can engage in a conversation about shame and honor um, that might speak to and might resonate with our Muslim neighbors? Yes, you are. And I'm so glad you went right back to Genesis because what we need to understand first, and this is our key to communication with our Muslim neighbors, we were all created for honor instead of shame. That was the intention of our creator, God. And honor originated with God. Shame originated in response to sin. When the first man and woman sinned in the Garden of Eden, as you just said, shame is a sin response. And in fact, my mentor, Roland Mueller, who is the author of Honor and Shame, Unlocking the Door, he has taught that there were three emotional responses to sin in Genesis 3. The first one was guilt. And we see that when they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. They knew what they had done wrong. The knowing came. And the second emotional response was shame. They hid themselves, and shame always forces its bearers into hiding. And then that third emotional response was fear. Adam told God he hid because he was afraid. So, so if, we, if we take this premise and we see that shame and guilt and fear were all emotional responses to the sin committed originally by Adam and Eve, We have three worldviews that emerge that can be observed all over the world today. We see a guilt-innocence worldview, which is what we primarily have here in the West. We're either guilty or we're innocent. We judge things whether they are wrong or they are right. Then we see another worldview, which is the shame-honor worldview, 
We see it in many parts of Asia, the Middle East, parts of Africa. Then we see the fear power worldview, um, many parts of South America, other parts of Africa, animistic cultures. I find this fascinating that um, out of these three emotional responses, we can observe three worldviews. Okay, that they is have everything to do with how we interpret the gospel. That is, to- that is totally fascinating. Okay, so we're going to um, return to this conversation in just a minute. Audrey Frank is my conversation partner today. The book is covered glory, and we'll be right back. Restoration, uh, wholeness, the the way that we we fundamentally feel different about ourselves when we know we are redeemed in Jesus Christ, that liberty, um, and then that connection to um, a family of faith that stands honorably before the Lord, not in our own righteousness, but under the covering of Jesus Christ. Talking with me today, uh, Audrey Frank, her book is entitled Covered Glory, uh, The Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. It's brand new, um, and it it chronicles, um, well, maybe I will just describe it this way. It it, it tells the tales um, and narrates uh, the stories of Muslim women uh, coming out of hiding and uh, telling us what's going on behind, behind that veil that often is this separation between us uh, culturally and conversationally. So, Audrey, um, what what are the some of those exchanges that we make um, in terms of the shame that we experience or the dishonor that we know uh, we live in before God because of sin? What's some of those trade-offs that we make? Shame tells us one thing, but the truth uh, tells us another thing. What, what are some of those trade-offs? <laughs> what a great question. Thanks for asking that question. Um, Really, shame is an accuser and a liar. Um, Shame is based on lies. The difference between guilt and shame is guilt tells me I've done something bad, and maybe there's some recourse. I can seek forgiveness or do something about that. But shame says I am bad. And so one of its greatest lies is there's no hope. There is no hope for you. But we know that the truth in Jesus Christ is there is always hope for you because of Jesus and what he did. He abolished shame on the cross. Another lie is you are a failure. Um, You will never succeed. And the Bible tells us in Philippians that um, through Christ, I can do all things. He gives me strength so I can do all things. I always ask people to identify what the lie is they're believing. What is the loop tape in your mind? And um, what is playing over and over, identify the lie and then identify its opposite and go to a good commentary, a good or a good, a good Bible dictionary and look up the opposite word Um, is the word. I am ugly. I am deplorable. Um, What's the opposite? Beautiful. Find what God says about you and replace the lies with truth. Well, I think that replacing lies with truth is an essential part of this conversation. And, And so that sort of satisfies uh, the way that I, as a Westerner, you know, right, am prone to think about things. Um, but I'm trying to communicate that in into uh, the into a conversation with my neighbor who's operating out of a completely different worldview and finds herself in in a really foreign culture. But you did that in the opposite direction. You lived in uh, in the context 
of, of the Muslim world. Um, so I would love for you to just tell us some of maybe some of the day to day challenges that you faced while living in such a what we would describe as what differently oriented or a, a culture that is operating out of a, a completely different system of thought. Well, one of the first examples that comes to my mind is when I, I first moved to a, a nation that is 99.9% Muslim and um, follows Sharia law, which means that the the religion informs the law and the way people live. Um, I, I did not cover my head. And so I did not wear hijab. I did not wear a scarf over my hair or over my face. I did have a long robe that I put on over my clothing that covered me to the wrists and to my ankles. And so the only thing that could be seen was my head and my hair and my hands. Um, but I would, I would go out to the market and try to do my shopping. And I had, I had a toddler or actually a baby at the time. And it was no easy task to go to the market and, and walk several miles and bring back potatoes and onions and things. But I look enough like the people of that that culture that they would mistake me for one of their own. And so the men would just curse me out for being out in public without a scarf. And so one day I just was so angry and frustrated. I marched back home, put on the hijab, went back out and finished my shopping. But and I finished it in peace. No one fussed at me. However, what happened in the next couple of months was what was fascinating um, my my respect and honor in the community grew, but the way that it grew was through my husband. My husband began to tell me that his friends were stopping him in the street and saying, "We're glad that you that you corrected your wife and that she understands now um, how to be an honorable woman. It brings much honor to you, sir." And so his his honor and respect began to grow. Um, in direct relationship to my behavior. And this brings me to a really important point. When you see the woman in the grocery store wearing a hijab, please understand she is the honor burden bearer for her culture, for her group. So much depends on her and no human being, no human being aside from the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came as God incarnate was ever intended to bear that burden. Audrey, um, do you understand Proverbs 31 differently, having lived in that context? <laughs> because uh, Proverbs 31 j- just leapt out of the Bible and into my face when you dis- when you said that. <laughs> what a great thought. I, I see the Bible completely differently now because it was written in an honor-shame context through an honor-shame lens. Um, but particularly Proverbs 31... Yes, it completely transforms your understanding. In fact, that could be an action point for your listeners today to go home and read Proverbs 31 again, verses 10 through 18 or so, and and think of it through the lens of a woman being the honor burden bearer in that culture, because you're exactly right. You're very perceptive. Um, <laughs> that Proverbs 31 woman was an honor-shame culture. Yes, she was. <laughs> Amen. Yes, she okay, was. so before um, before we have to go, I want people to be able to find you, AudreyFrank.com, but I also know you're giving something away and people love free stuff, so... <laughs> Well, I, I, I like I made a resource um, called Worldview for Dummies because I know that we can live within our own worldview and, and not quite be able to understand it and explain it to others ourselves. 
And so if you would like to go to AudreyFrank.com on the media tab, you'll find under free downloads, Worldview for Dummies. It's a free download. It should help you compare these worldviews we've talked about today and understand how to bridge the conversation and your gospel witness a little more easily with your Muslim friend, because our starting point can make all the difference in being understood. Absolutely. So AudreyFrank.com, go to the media resources tab. There's a free download there for you today. Audrey, thank you so much. We look forward to a continued conversation. Thank you. We'll be right back. So there's a lot of discussion in the uh, in the media right now about white nationalism. Uh, we are using that language to describe the terrorist act in Texas this week, uh, in El Paso. Russell Moore has a new piece posted called White Nationalist Terrorism and the Gospel. His communications director, Daniel Darling, will be here up next. Dan and I are also going to talk about uh, the five people that are most crucial to your leadership success. So we're going to, Dan and I are going to talk about two topics because we have two segments. So there you go. Dan Darling up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Being generous isn't about what you give. It's about how you give. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. The Bible says that you should give with your heart. Don't do it out of obligation or duty. Do it because God loves a cheerful giver. Do you know what's really cool? There's no limit on what you can give or who you give to, whether it's your time, your talent, or your treasure. It's between you and God and how generosity plays a role in your life. Sometimes it seems the easiest way is to give money because it's a simple transaction. But don't forget to give your abilities, too. We all know how valuable time is, so give that with a cheerful heart as well. You know, what you give isn't as important as how you give. It's that you give for the right reasons. Give out of gratitude and obedience, and the joy you feel when you give will be returned to you many times over. All right, so as I'm bringing Dan Darling on, he is the Vice President of Communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, which is a giant mouthful of uh, of introduction. You can find him um, in all kinds of places. The easiest are ERLC.com, DanielDarling.com, and on Twitter at DanDarling. Uh, before I bring Dan on, I want to remind everybody of two conversations we have had here on air um, about the Caring Well Conference. We have talked about the book, Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. You can find that at churchcares.com. We have also talked specifically about the Caring Well Conference, which is going to be uh, in Dallas, October 3, 4, and 5. Today's the last day to, um, to, to get the discounted price. And so there are a few seats left. Let me just encourage you, if you've been thinking about that, if you've been talking with your church about the Caring Well Challenge, if you've been talking about um, confronting the abuse crisis in your local congregation. This is your opportunity, um, and so uh, I just I just want to highlight that as I bring Dan on today. Hey, Dan, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Carmen. Um, so you're my neighbor, so um, I should be offering up the fresh tomatoes and um, and pears that we picked yesterday in the garden in the orchard. So I will um, I will drop a basket by. Hey, I'm I'm ready for that. 
All right. There you go. Okay. So um, two things I want to talk with you uh, about today. The first one is white nationalism and terrorism that grows out of what we are describing as white nationalism. Let's start with those words. Um, I know that Russell Moore has a, a brand new piece posted called White Nationalist Terrorism and the Gospel. Folks can find that uh, in all kinds of places. The easiest one would be russellmoore.com. Um, talk with us about those words uh, in this week. Well, I think it's important for us to to identify and name uh, what's going on. And, and um, you know, I, I think we've tended to before to sort of just look at each of these horrific shootings as sort of one-off events or just kind of random events. But it, we're seeing a real epidemic and a real trend that young men, mostly white men, but not, not all the time, are being sort of radicalized online into, into uh, these dangerous ideologies. Much of the time it's toward this kind of white nationalist, uh, white supremacy uh, stuff. Sometimes it's radicalized into other ideologies too that cause them to want to to harm people. Um, but I think we have a real radicalization problem. Uh, we have a domestic terrorism problem, and it, and it really seems like we need to take it as seriously as we did uh, after nine eleven when uh, we were attacked. That we took seriously the threat of international terrorism, and so I think we got to we got to take this seriously that there. are there are kids in our communities that are being radicalized online. There's a whole, there's all sorts of factors to that and all sorts of, I think, possible solutions. But I think at the very least, we have to, we have to see what's happening. So uh, I immediately like leap in my mind when I hear these conversations about these, these young men who are disconnected, they are, they are searching for an identity they, mm-hmm. they think they are finding that in the color of their skin or in some sort of tribal origin of a people group. Um, they are looking for a sense of belonging, and they think that that is a group to which they can belong. And then they find this, um, this horrible purpose. And mm-hmm. when, I, when I just think about those three things, that identity, belonging, and purpose, like we recognize that those are the things that we all yearn for. We, we, we yearn to know um, who we are. We yearn to be a part of a people, um, and we yearn to have a, a life that has some meaning, right? That there's a that I would actually come to know why in the world I'm in the world, and all of those are answered in Christ. Like you and I know that, um, but those identity, belonging, and purpose conversations are also being horribly answered by white nationalism in our country right now. And I think that in terms of equipping our listeners um, to recognize the depth of the need for people to understand who they are, to have a group to which they belong and to have a purpose. Like as Christians, we're actually equipped for these conversations. That's exactly right, Carmen. You, you, you hit, you, you uh, answered it exactly. I mean, uh, these young men that are being radicalized are, are disconnected. Uh, the social bonds are, are frayed. They're not attached to community. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about is, for several decades, the church has warned young men, rightly, about the dangers of online pornography and how it can just ensnare and entrap you and ruin your life. But we also need to be warning young men about the dangers of kind of this endless time online and the way the internet can not just entrap you into, into a pornography addiction, but it can also suck you into these dark portals of, of evil 
where where people are radicalized. And uh, you are exactly right. Uh, you know, we need to look in our communities for young men who are disconnected, who maybe their family structure is is not well or other things and and find ways to connect them into communities ultimately connect them into the, into the church uh young men need fathers uh, there's a great need for the church in the church for fathers and mothers to you know one of the things about a father figure is that a father figure can help a young person particularly a young man you know he can help rebuke and um correct the passions of a young man to keep them from going uh, down a dark path. He could sort of pull them out of this uh, connection to an online community and tribal identity that he might think is good, but is actually leading him uh, astray. And so we do need to replace, you know, it, it's all about longing, as you said, for for an identity, for a purpose, uh, to be known and to be named. Uh, and we we can offer in the gospel that if you are in Christ, you are known by God uh, you can know God and you have a new community. And so uh, this, this is what I think how the church needs to address this. So I feel like um, when we talk about dignity, uh, the dignity of the individual, um, you know, I want to just be sure people actually know that you wrote a book about this. It's called The Dignity Revolution, uh, Reclaiming God's Rich Vision for Humanity. Yeah. Am I right? Okay. Um, I knew it was reclaiming God's rich vision, and I couldn't remember just exactly how personal it was or how global. And so uh, we're reclaiming it for humanity, which I love. Um, Dan, you made a nice connection there to um, to the need that we experience in our lives for uh, fathers. And I know that as the father of daughters, um, you are interested in those who are the fathers of sons, right? Because those boys um, one day... Uh, will aspire to uh, take your girls out on dates and things like that. And so um, we have a we have a heart concern that is shared uh, among those who are concerned not only about the generation in which we're now living, which obviously is broken, but we're concerned about the future. And so I want to when we come back from the break, I want to talk with you about this piece that you just um, posted at factsandtrends.net. Um, which talks about these five critical relationships, the five people that are most crucial. And I know that it's about leadership, but I really think that these are five crucial people or five crucial relationships for each and every one of us. So that conversation up next with Dan Darling. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dan Darling, you can find him online at danieldarling.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Dan Darling. Um, you've got a piece posted right now at factsandtrends.net entitled Five People Most Crucial to Your Leadership Success. I actually think these are five people crucial to just like life, but <laughs> that's maybe maybe that seemed too comprehensive. So uh, tell us who the five people are. So the the first the first kind of person you need in your life is a father or a mother. And, you know, some of us, you know, I have the privilege of having a great, a great father and great mother. Uh, some people have more complicated relationships with their parents, but we all need fathers and mothers. I've also had people in my life that have been fathers <clears throat> in certain ways. When I started my first, when I pastored my first church, I had an older gentleman who was really a mentor to me and really helped shape me and, and, and save me from 
really from myself uh, as a young leader. So we all need a father to, or a mother who can kind of put their arms around us and affirm us and help guide us uh, and, and give us give us that that guidance we also i think need sons and daughters whether whether it's our own children or it's other people i think um you know just like uh paul had timothy uh barnabas had paul paul had timothy people that that maybe are a few miles behind us in our career or in our christian walk that we can sort of nurture and help along we can open doors for them we can we can put our arms around them and say hey i think I think you really got a talent here, or I think this is where I see you going, or how can I help you with this? To just affirm them and, and give them that, I think is very important. We also need real friends. Um, you know, one of the pieces of advice that I was given, bad advice, I think, when I started in the ministry was, uh, don't be really close friends with anybody. Just kind of keep everyone at arm's length when you're a leader. And some leaders uh, practice that, and I, I think it's dangerous. I think we need genuine, real friends. Uh, that can be in our lives that we can um, sort of let our hair down with if we have any hair left. I, I don't have much left, but, <laughs> um, you know, but people that we can be comfortable with, um, a handful of close friends uh, that I would do anything for and they would do anything for us. Um, and then I think we need people in our inner circle. Sometimes it's our friends, sometimes it's our father, sometimes it's other people who are going to tell us things that we do not want to hear. Uh, and this is really critical especially for leaders, that we have people close to us who are willing to be as Nathan was to David to say, you know, I think you're wrong here. I think what you just did, what you just said, or what you're about to do is not right. And the only way that we have people like this in our inner circle is if we allow them. And for leaders, this starts not when you're a big deal, right? But it starts when you're not a big deal and you willingly say, I want you in here and I want you to be able to tell me what I need to hear. I'm not talking about cynics and I'm not talking about trolls and I'm not talking about people that will just constantly bring you down, but people willing to say, you know, because I love you, because I care about you, I think, I think you were a jerk there. Or I think you handled this poorly. Um, and then I, lastly, I think we need people around us that complement our gifts and our life experiences. Um, we don't want, just want people around us who are just like us, who have the same background and the same, uh, you know, came from the same place, but people who may, may have come from a different place or different background who can um, maybe show us a perspective on things uh, that we may not see. Um, people who their gifts and their talents complement ours. Uh, when I've been in healthy organizations, uh, I've seen leaders that do this well. I've been in unhealthy organizations and I've seen leaders not do this well and, and, and sort of have a bunch of people around them that are just like them. I don't think that's that's very healthy. And I think, it, as you said, this is not just important for leadership but for life, uh, to have people around us who can give us a different perspective. I mean one of the things that I think is sometimes distressing is when you're in a group of people where everybody sort of thinks the same way and it's kind of this hive mind mentality where no one's there to say, you know, I, I don't know that we're seeing this completely or here's what we're missing. Um, so I think that's just sort of the way to live a well-rounded godly life. So I, um, I remember Leonard Sweet's book, and I, I know that the number is 11, but then I'm trying to remember uh, the subhead, but it's like, you know, 11 indispensable relationships or something like that. And I remember reading that book. I mean, that's been a decade ago probably. Um, and thinking to myself, I need I need these 11 people, but there were definitely um, 
uh, 11 was too many for like me to keep up with. I, I can't yeah. even imagine having like 11. Like, so my dad used to say, if you think you can count your real friends on more than one hand, um, you're wrong. Like, you know, just, just like straight up, right? Like five is about as many as I can, uh, I can imagine being at a depth that we're talking about. And so, you know, what's my like primary discipling relationship in terms of who is discipling me? Cause that's really the mother father relationship that you're really talking about. And then who am I discipling? So like, as that goes the other direction, and we could use the word mentor here. Um, if that's a more comfortable word for people, um, if the mm-hmm. familial language, you know, weirds people out or whatever, right. We could use the word mentor. We could use the word disciple. Um, and, and so, you know, what's that primary relationship um, in terms of who is the more mature disciple who is helping yep. me, um, raising me, and then in the other direction, you know, who's who is behind me, uh, coming coming along behind me um, on uh, on the trail of faith, and and I am really actively pouring uh, myself into them. I will tell you, Dan, there's there's nothing more convicting in my experience. There's nothing more convicting than a person who is. Um, Younger in the faith, I don't know how, younger is not the right word here, less mature in the faith, uh, who catches me not being who I claim to be in Christ. Like, right, my hypocrisy is so, just, gosh, so shiny bright when I am with a person whom I'm supposed to be discipling, and I just, you know, right? But it's pretty convicting. And um, and one, yeah, one of the things I love about about your list when I got to the end of it, and you use the word um, compliment, um, is that that is the sense of the word complementarian. The way you use the word compliment here, um, you know, who are the people who compliment your gifts and life experience? That is the substance of complementarianism. If we actually think about it at its root. And man, I thought, well, here's a here is a way using this word in this way and thinking about this word in this way. Could we could we use that to till some soil in, uh, in in what has become a really hard conversation in the life of the church around complementarianism? Yeah, I think I think when you think about complimenting others, it's it's we're recognizing the humanity of of other people that mm-hmm. you know, particularly men and women, men and women, God has created in His image to live side by side and to work together for Him that. That there are certain unique and, and obviously every relationship is different in terms of the way that it breaks out, but there's certain ways in which, um, you know, we lean and depend on the gifts of others, right? Like we're not created to live in isolation; we're created to live in community. And so, for in order for me to have a whole life and a full life, I I depend on the gifts of other people. And I just want to go back a little bit to what you said about mentoring people behind us. I think one of the things that God has really done in my life, and I, and I hope he's doing in others, is that the older I get, is that nurturing a desire in me to see others flourish, to, to mm. how can I open doors for people? How can I affirm them? How can I, whether it's I read a book or I see someone's good work and say, man, this is really good. I want to encourage you. I want to keep, encourage you to keep going in this. Um, I think that's just really important. I, th- I think of Barnabas seeking out Paul and saying, Man, I I see God's hand on you. I see the Spirit on you, and I want to propel you into what God has for you. I think that is just really really important. There are people all around us that need mentors. They need fathers mm-hmm. and mothers to put their arms around them and say, "God has His hand on you, and I want to help you." 
Man, I just, uh, I love talking with you and I appreciate your perspective um, and appreciate what you're doing each and every day in in so many spheres. So thank you, thank you, Dan Darling. Hey, you guys can uh, visit Dan online. Uh, you can also check out what he has just written at Facts and Trends. You can check out what uh, the piece Russell Moore has posted on white nationalism at russellmore.com. You can find it all at erlc.com. That's a lot of websites. All right, I'll be right back. All right, so as we uh, as we bring this hour of conversation to a conclusion, I want you to just consider the, to consider the question, who are your spiritual mentors? Who um, Who's your mother and or your father in the faith? And who are you currently spiritually mentoring or discipling? Who are your sons and daughters in the faith? For whom are you opening doors or sharing platform or elevating? Who are your real friends in the faith? We talked about this um, yesterday, the, ter- the need for real friends. We're actually going to have this conversation in just a minute. Um, uh, with Bill English when we talk about David and Jonathan and the nature of their friendship. Who are your real friends in the faith? And who are the people who tell you things that you don't want to hear? Who are those people who can speak into your life in ways that are necessary but also hard? And then who are the people who complement your gifts and life experience? Not just people who are just like you, but people who are genuinely um, complimentary. They are of a different age or stage in life. They are a different ethnicity, different uh, they're male or female, and you are the other. Uh, you, you get the idea here. Um, who is uh, who's that constellation of people with whom you are doing life today? Be sure that um, you are encouraging those five relationships. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.